Good morning once again. We are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25. If you need a Bible, Greg is up, and I'd love to bring you a Bible. Just raise your hand so you can follow along with us. As you're turning there, I just want to talk a little bit about this coming Wednesday, the 4th of July. Special day in our country, not just because of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, but many things actually, special things happened on that day. Three American presidents died on the 4th of July. John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and James Monroe. And if you want to get down to it, Monroe was ready to die several days earlier, but the doctors kept him alive with drugs just long enough to live so that, that, that he would die on the 4th of July. Why did they do that? Because the 4th of July meant something to them. Calvin Coolidge was born on that day in 1872. West Point opened July 4th, 1802. Stephen Foster, distant relative of mine, was born on July 4th. (laughs) The song America was sung for the first time on July 4th, 1832 in Boston. Alaska and Hawaii both became states on the 4th of July. Slavery was abolished in the state of New York on July 4th, 1845. And in the great document delivered on July 4th, 1776, we read of a belief that all people have the rights given by the creator of mankind. This document uh, has only 1,321 words. It takes eight minutes to read it. And God is mentioned four times, twice at the beginning and twice at the end. Purpose of the Declaration of Independence was to separate us officially from the repression and the authority of of England. In fact, the very act of signing the Declaration said to the world that I'm a traitor to my my native country of England, I'm a criminal, I'm a, a fugitive from London's justice. Now, who were these men that were willing to sign this Declaration? Of the 56 men who signed it, two were 20 years of age, 16 were in their 30s, 20 were in their 40s, 11 in their 50s, 6 in their 60s, and 1, Benjamin Franklin, was over 70. All but 2 were married. Each had an average of 6 children, a lot of kids back then. 24 were lawyers, 9 were merchants, 14 were farmers, 4 were doctors, and 1 was a preacher. Now, we're not talking about low-life drifters or, you know, rebels. We're talking about educated, civilized men who were willing to sacrifice everything they believed or for the cause they believed in. And history shows us that they paid the price for their bravery. When uh, Carter Braxton of Virginia signed the Declaration of Independence, he was a wealthy uh, planter and trader. But following his signing, his ships were destroyed. And to pay his debts, he lost his home and all of his property. And in the end, he died in rags. Thomas McKean of Delaware was so harassed by the enemy that he was forced to move his family five times in five months. He served in Congress without pay, which our Congress should, you know, take an example from, while his family was in poverty and in hiding. Vandals looted the properties of Ellery and Clymer and Hall and Gwinnett and Walton and Hayward and Rutledge and Middleton. Thomas Nelson Jr. of Virginia raised $2 million on his own, uh, in his own name, to help fund the war. After the war, he personally paid back the loans wiping out his entire estate. He was never reimbursed by the government. And in the final battle of Yorktown, Nelson urged General Washington to fire on Nelson's own home, then occupied by the enemy. He died bankrupt. Francis Lewis had his home and everything destroyed. His wife in prison. She died within a few months. 
Richard Stockton, who signed the declaration, was captured and mistreated and his health mortally broken and then his estate was pillaged. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside while she was lying there dying. Their 13 children fled in all directions for their lives. His fields and, 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 and grill was, uh, mill rather was, were laid to waste. For more than a year, he lived in forests and caves and returned home after the war to find his wife dead, his children gone, his properties gone. He died a few weeks later of exhaustion and of, of a broken heart. Of the 56 signers of the Declaration, few were long to survive. Five were captured by the British as traitors and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in, a revolution, in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons that were captured. And though few of them benefited from their bravery and most lost everything they owned, not one, not one recanted his original Declaration of Independence. I mean, these men were brave. They were, they were courageous, valiant. And because of them and others, we have the privilege of being here today and living in the greatest country in the world. Amen. Amen. We, absolutely, praise the Lord. We are a great nation because of the blessings of God. Let me give you a couple of quotes. John Adams said, The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. And then he said, wanted to say, in observing the 4th of July, it ought to be commemorated as a day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to Almighty God. And so I think, you know, as Christians, that what we, that's what we should do. Come the 4th, make sure you get up on the 4th and just thank the Lord for what he's done for us and how he's blessed us and allowed us to live in this country. So with all that said, let's now get to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 18 through 25 this morning. Let's go ahead and read them, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. The title of my message this morning is Christmas in July or Divine Interruptions. Couldn't decide. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning to be in your word. We thank you, Lord, for this country that we live in. We do pray, Lord, for our nation. We pray for the leaders, our president, those that make decisions, those that that, uh, enact the laws of our land. We pray, Lord, for them, that they would make godly decisions and godly laws, and we would get back to your word. Lord, we thank you for your word. And how, Lord, as we get into your word, your Holy Spirit reveals the things in our lives that we need to address, that we need to understand, that we need to apply in our lives. Lord, we also pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again. Lord, would you especially touch them this morning? We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I read a story about a young couple that had their first baby. When it was one year old, it still hadn't said a word, not a single word. 
at one and a half years old, still not a word. So the parents, were, they were concerned, so they took him to, to the pediatrician, and, and the pediatrician said, well, everything's perfectly normal, just be patient. And so it wasn't until the child's 25th month that they were all having breakfast, and the kid turned to his mother and said, this oatmeal is too lumpy. And the parents were amazed, and so they said, why haven't you talked before? The kid replied, up till now, things have gone very well. <laughs> Kids. I mean, it's a whole new ball game once you have children. For those of you that, that, that are married, do you remember when you were engaged? Did you think about what your family would be like? Did you talk, you know, how many kids you're going to have? And, and, you know, what would you name? Oh, I think we should have two kids or three kids. Or, well, let's name them this or name them that. You talk about where you would live. I bet if I took a poll right now, many of you would have never guessed you would be doing exactly what you're doing right now. I know I wouldn't. I can say when Lisa and I, my wife, we were, you know, engaged 40 years ago, it never crossed my mind that I would have five kids and be living in the middle of the United States in Missouri. I mean, have you ever given serious thought, though, to the thought that Mary and Joseph had prior to them being visited by an angel? What they thought their lives would be like, how they thought it would turn out. Oh, Joseph, our life's going to be so great. We're going to live here and, and, and do this. And oh, Mary, it's going to be wonderful. I'm taking over my dad's carpentry shop and, and we'll teach our children how to do work with wood. And it's going to be, be amazing. And, you know, little did they know how God was going to interrupt their lives in such a radical way. You see, God has built order into the world. And we know that he's not the author of chaos. But being God, he reserves the right to interrupt into our lives and incorporate his own plans in our lives at any moment. Divine interruptions, I like to call them. And even though to us things may seem chaotic going on around us, ultimately God has designed these things for good. Now we can't predict them, but the scriptures say that before the foundations of the world uh, were, God planned the course of our lives. We're told in Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Ephesians 2.10, the same thing. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, we have no control over the way he wants to employ us in his plans of salvation for the world, but it's exciting that God uses us as his plan unfolds. Now, one such interruption happens in the life of Mary and Joseph. And if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to look at three people. Number one, we're going to look at Joseph, the perplexed husband. Number two, we're going to look at Mary, the pregnant teenager. And we're going to close with Jesus, the predicted king, number three. Let's take a look at number one, Joseph, the perplexed husband. Now understand, Joseph's name means may he add or one more will be added. Little did my wife and I know that when we named our fourth son Joseph, that four years later, one more would be added. That was Matthew. No, we love Matthew, but we didn't know. We don't know a lot about Joseph, except that Matthew describes him in verse 19 as a just man. Just here means uh, upright, virtuous keeping the, the commands of God. He's a carpenter living in Nazareth where he and Mary grew up. I think it's kind of hard for us to, to grasp the significance 
2,000 years later of that, because in our minds, when we hear the word Nazareth, immediately we think of the life of Jesus. Well, that's where, that's where Jesus was from. So we have this special regard for it. But back in the day, Nazareth was not the vacation capital of the world. In fact, Nazareth was a relatively small place, but very, very extremely wicked place. One with a population of about 20,000 people. It was known for its sin. It was the, the, the Las Vegas of the time, if you would. Many pagan temples there as well. It's one of those places that you would pass through when you're on your way to someplace else. And that's why Nathaniel, upon hearing about Jesus Christ being from Nazareth, he says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth because of the reputation of the city? Yet in this wicked place lived this young woman and man, both of royal blood, as we looked at last week, a direct descendant of David, uh, King David, living a pure life in an impure place. See, Mary and Joseph's description shows to us that it's possible to do just that, to live a pure life even in a pure place. That even though this world around us, that we see the wickedness and we see it's getting worse and worse, uh, it, it's possible to stay separate and live holy lives unto the Lord. Now, Joseph never speaks in any gospel, but the first thing we read about him is he's, he's put in this difficult situation. Look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that the angel Gabriel came to Mary and told her she would be blessed among women because she, she would be used by God to bring the Messiah into this world. But Joseph, he had no heads up. He had no clue. Mary had to reveal this to him. She, she had to reveal to him that she was pregnant and that it happened supernaturally. Now, we know that Joseph wasn't buying it because we read in verse 19 that Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. I mean, can you blame him? I mean, I mean think about this. If some young girl, you know, maybe in our high school or junior high ministry, said, I'm pregnant, but it's not what you think. This is something that the Holy Spirit supernaturally did. You would think she's crazy. And this is the reaction, uh, you know, basically that Joseph had to her. Don't, don't forget, Mary was a teenager. And you know how teenagers are. You know how they speak. They have their own way of communicating. You know, if you have one, you know this. Maybe Mary, if it was, you know, in our day and age, she would say something like, Joseph, this, this angel dude came to me the other night. His, his name was Gabriel, and like, like, like I was going to be the mother of the Messiah. And, and I said, how is that going to be? And he said, that God will do it. And I said, shut up, no way. And he said, wait. And I said, wow. And he said, you go, girl. And, and it, was, it was amazing. I mean, could you imagine Mary trying to explain it to Joseph? Joseph's going, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. But imagine how his heart must have been hurting. I mean, not only has the one that, that he loved betrayed him, but now she's pregnant. And it's not his child. I, I mean, he loved Mary, but his heart was broken. See, back in biblical times, uh, a betrothal was different than what we call an engagement. To be betrothed, it was almost like being married. You would fight and argue just as if you were married. No, that's not what it is. It means that their parents had already espoused them. Back in biblical times, and even in some cultures even today, the parent would pick the bride for their son. I think there's something to be said for that. I don't think we necessarily should go back to that, but I certainly can see the benefits of a parent going, okay, not you, but you. You know, I, I can see that. Now, 
even if you were a young boy or young girl, you knew who your future husband or wife would be. Now, when they got old enough, they had what was called an espousal period. We might refer to that as an engagement, but it was much more than what we look at as an engagement. The engagement was almost as though you were married, as I said, because if you were unfaithful during that espousal period, then it was as though you violated your marriage vows, and then a formal divorce was required to nullify that marriage, even though you were only engaged. And so when Mary became pregnant through the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, she conceived Christ in her womb. So this was regarded by jo- Joseph as a violation of their vows. Now Joseph has, has a choice to make. To make her a public example or to put her away secretly. Divorce her secretly. According to one source, if Joseph had chosen to make a public example of her, she would have been taken to the town square where she would stand in a box of manure up to her knees and the people of the city would have thrown rocks at her until she fell face forward into the box of manure and died. That was a penalty for immorality. Now, I, I like Joseph. I'm sure that Mary's pregnancy was met with shock, anger, unbelief, but he still loved her. And he didn't know what to do. I mean, Joseph was human. He doesn't want to shame Mary, so he quietly decides to divorce her. One commentator writes this, Those who have a right relationship with God need not shame others, even if their sin is involved. Righteous people have sensitivity both to the Word of God and the will of God. Righteousness in personal relationship need not include shame. In other words, if you know someone's overtaken in a fall and, 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 and maybe they've sinned and they've sought repentance and, and they seek the Lord and God has forgiven them, you don't broadcast their sin to the whole world. Oh, shame, look at this. You know what this person did? I can't believe this person. In fact, Paul in Galatians 6, 1 and 2 tells us this. He warns us that, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so forth for the law of Christ. I wouldn't want someone, you know, blasting my sins all over the place. God doesn't do that for us, so we shouldn't do that for other people. So Joseph's choices were to have had Mary stoned or have her put away privately. But again, because of his love for her, he decides he would put her away in a quiet manner. But, but God had other plans. God intervenes. God interrupts Joseph's life. He had a plan, but God says, no, here's my plan. Look at verse 20. Angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth the son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I bet Joseph woke up from that dream and went, Man, I am so glad. Now, we're going to come back to verse 20 later on, but, but to Joseph's eternal credit, he obeys God and actually has the privilege of spending some very important early years with Jesus. I mean, no one, no one can say that at this time. Spending time with Jesus in that carpenter's shop, perhaps teaching him the trade, talking to him. That should be a lesson for us, us fathers. One survey that was taken by author Josh McDowell says that in the average teen, the average teen in our churches spends only two minutes a day in meaningful dialogue with his dad. 25% of these teens say they have never had a meaningful conversation with their father that is a talk centered on the teen's likes and dislikes. Another study showed that fathers of preschool children on their average spend 37.7 seconds per day in real contact with their preschoolers. In contrast, this study indicated that children watch television approximately 54 hours per week. 
I know we talked about this last week, but sadly many dads today are too busy or too preoccupied to get involved and take initiative into the leadership of their family. And, and, and the lack of strong male leadership in the home results in a lack of, of male leadership in our, in our church, in our society at large, and in our culture today. I believe that the church as a whole, especially in America today, is so weak because there are so few godly men who are willing to take, up a, a, take a stand and to lead. Many churches today, the women have to take the lead because it men just don't want to get, get involved. And the sad thing is, when, when, you know, the boys who grow up, up in church and have no strong male role models, they tend to become dis, disinterested in church and a relationship with the Lord. The church needs men like Joseph who are not afraid to be men of God. Men who, who signed our Declaration of Independence. Men who have courage and are willing to lay down their lives for the line of Christ. Joseph spent time with a child that he had not fathered, but a child he adopted and loved as his own. He nurtured him. He cared for him. He protected him when the hatred of, of Herod taking him, him off to Egypt and so forth. Evidently, he, again, he taught him the trade of, of, of being a carpenter. He adopted the one in which the rest of the world would reject. No words of Joseph are ever recorded, but Joseph's actions speak louder than words. You know, instead of divorce, he marries. When the angel tells him to flee to Egypt for the safety of the child, he goes. When he's instructed to return, he returns. Joseph is just, uh, you know, he's upright, he's virtuous, and he obeys all the things that God is looking for. And, and you and me, we're told in Proverbs twenty one twenty one, he who follows righteousness and mercy finds life, righteousness, and honor. I like that. Certainly that speaks of Joseph. What an example for us men. See, Joseph would give God and Mary his best and be honored throughout all time, throughout all history for it. It's a story I found of a couple who had celebrated their golden anniversary with a big party. Fifty years of being together. Presents were exchanged and congratulations were expressed before they got in the car and drove home. When they got home, the woman made her way into the kitchen. As was her custom, she brewed some tea and, and, and took out a loaf of bread, which she baked daily for, for years. She cut off the heel, warmed it, and buttered it for her husband before cutting another slice for herself. Then she served him the warm bread. Sounds good, huh? Now, this guy who had been married for 50 years loved his wife greatly, but the stress of the day had taken his toll. He blew up. He said, honey, I love you. You know that. But, frank, but quite frankly, this is it. For more years than I count, you have baked bread for me every day, but you always give me the heel. You always pass off that, that crusty piece of bread, that heel on me. I've had it. I won't take it anymore. She looked at him, blinked back the tears and said, but honey, that's my favorite piece. She was giving him the best. And if man, man, if we want our wife to give their best, minister to them, lead them, allow them to develop their relationship with Jesus Christ. So this was Joseph. Now next we look at Mary, the pregnant teenager. Number two, our second point. Very is little said of Mary in Matthew's Gospel. Only one verse here devoted to the virgin birth. You would think that, that something this enormous would require a, a little more attention. But really, how can you explain it? It simply says, look at verse 20, Do not be afraid to take to you marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. I like that. See, listen, the birth of Jesus was not accomplished by any human uh, initiative. Jesus said in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. When Jesus comes to anyone in history, even in his first coming to Mary, it's always the result of the Holy Spirit. 
not of human initiative. Now, many commentators believe that Mary was very young, in fact, as young as 12, 12 to 14 years old when the angel came to her. And you can be sure there was pressures on her just like there is pressures on young people today. But she walked with God. And she lived a holy life in a a way that he wanted her to live. So one day God interrupts her life by sending the angel Gabriel. Now, there's a few angels in the Bible that we're given names for. We know Michael the archangel. We have Gabriel and we have Lucifer the fallen angel. God sends one of his his high-ranking angels, Gabriel, possibly an archangel like Michael, but if not, a certainly very important angel. And here's what he says to her in Luke chapter 1 verse 27. This is in the old King James. He says, And the angel came unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Understand, this was not a prayer to Mary. This is a greeting from Gabriel. When he says hail, it doesn't mean like like hail or, or praise you because hail is just the King, King James version of saying way of saying hello or greetings to you. In fact, the New Living Translation says, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Now, growing up Roman Catholic, my mom would take us to the beach and looking for a parking place. The prayer was, Hail Mary, full of grace, help us find a parking place. And uh, she would just, you know, I remember to this day. And, and uh, Now, why do I bring this up? Well, of course, it's because the Roman Catholic Church would teach us differently concerning Mary. In fact, according to the Roman Catholic Church, uh, they have four main heresies concerning Mary that I want to point out to you this morning. Number one, one of the the big ones, the Immaculate Conception. You may have heard this word before. It's a false doctrine that teaches that Mary was born without a sin nature, that Mary never sinned. Now, we know that's not true. The Bible plainly teaches in Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. We know in Romans 6.23, or 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So no, that that one's not true. The second heresy that the Catholic Church teaches concerning Mary is the perpetual virginity of Mary. That is that Mary never married, that she remained a permanent virgin. That's totally unbiblical as well. Clearly evidence when Jesus went to his hometown, and it says this in Matthew 13, 55 and 56, that they said, is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So, you know, Catholics completely ignore the clearest teaching of the Scriptures in order to, to fabricate their role of Mary in the church. Third heresy the Catholic Church teaches concerning Mary is a bodily assumption of Mary. Since the Bible teaches in Romans 6.23 that sins bring death, and since Catholics teach the heresy that Mary never sinned, they had to come up, they had to fabricate this heresy that Mary never saw death. That Mary just rose into the heavens as Jesus did. See, sadly, one heresy leads to another heresy that leads to another heresy in order for it to all work in Catholicism. Pope Pius XII made this false teaching of Mary bodily taken into heaven, official dogma of the Catholic Church in 1950. And finally, the fourth heresy that is promoted in the Catholic Church, and this one I think is probably the worst, is Mary is a co-redeemer of mankind. Clearly, contrary to what the Word of God teaches. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
Acts 4, 2, speaking of Jesus, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Isaiah 43, 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. See, the teachings concerning Mary and the Roman Catholic Church simply are not supported in the teachings of Scripture. But understand, we want to see Mary in the proper perspective. We don't want to put her on a pedestal that is too high and look at her as if, as if she's some sort of deity. But on the other hand, we don't want her to demean her and miss her place in the Bible because certainly she stands as a virtuous model for all women to follow. I mean, blessed among women. She, she, was, she was, you know, Mary, Mary as golly she was, she was still a sinner like everybody else. She had to have salvation just in the same way you and I have to have salvation. In fact, what is called her magnificent and recorded in Luke 146 says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. She says, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. She recognizes her need for a Savior. She needed Jesus. But understand, she was the most blessed among women and she was honored in bringing the Savior of the world into this world. Amazing. Now this brings us to our third and final point, our third person that we want to look at this morning, and that is Jesus, the predicted King. Look now back at verses 21 through 23. And she will bring forth the Son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for you will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us shall call his name Jesus, the angel declares. Now, Jesus is the name of our Savior. It's his only name as far as his, his human, earthly name goes. If you're new to, to, to the faith, a common misconception is that Jesus' full name is Jesus Christ, and then Christ is his last name. That's not the way it works. Actually, Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Yeshua or Joshua. And the name Joshua, really, at the time of Christ, was a very common name. You know, it's like, uh, you know, Bill or Bob or Billy Bob. You know, it's a common name. But it's not so much the name as the meaning behind it. Yeshua means Yahweh is the one who saves or God saves. And the word Christ or Christos is a title. It means anointed one. And so the Hebrews use the term uh, Mashiach or Messiah meaning the same thing. Have you ever met someone whose, whose name actually fits them, you know, or the meaning of their name actually fits them. You know, we talked about last week Naomi's two sons, Malon and Chilion, and their names meant sickly and piney, and, and both of them died. And, and you think, man, I guess that's why you named them, because they look sickly and died. Well, now, why would you get married to someone? But we talked about that last, that last time. But we looked at how Esau's name meant Harry. And when he was born, there was hair all over his body, and said, we'll call him Harry. Well, when it comes to Jesus, this is exactly the same thing. Jesus' name and mission were the same. His name is Yeshua. Yahweh is the one who saves. God saves. Fulfilling what Isaiah 7.14 says in verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which, which is translated God with us. I mean, what a, a staggering thought this is. This is really the essence of Christianity. If you wanted to take the Christian faith and compare it to all other religious worldviews, here would be a clear distinction. Christianity is God with us. Not us trying to please God somehow or earn His approval or if we are good and diligent, we might work our way to heaven or reach a state of nirvana. 
The Christian faith teaches that it's God with us, living inside of us, helping us to be the men and the women that God has called us to be. Christianity says you are never alone. God is going to walk with you throughout your life. You know, Jesus echoed the same thought when he said, Lo, I am with you to the end of the age. What he said in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you or forsake you. It is God with us, Emmanuel. That's the greatest message of the birth of Jesus Christ. And maybe you need to be reminded of that right now. Maybe you're feeling alone. Maybe, maybe you're single. You've never yet found that man or woman. Maybe you never will, but God is with you. Maybe your marriage is hanging on a thread right now. At this time of year, and so much emphasis is placed on family picnics and family get-togethers, and you're maybe having some marital problems. Listen, God is with you. Maybe you're estranged from your children. There's a lot of friction there. God is with you. Maybe someone has let you down, and maybe you're disappointed. God is with you. That's a message that we must remember. God is with us. And this was not some accident or coincidence, but God's prearranged plan that God would interrupt this world by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to this world. God with us. Let's finish up. Last two verses here. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took, him, took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Joseph did the right thing, obeyed the Lord, refused to have relations with Mary until after the birth of Jesus. Again, the Bible teaches that Mary had other children. Notice the word till in verse 25. It means until she had brought forth her firstborn son. In other words, after Jesus was born, she had other children. But there was only one of her children who would have the power and the authority to save his people from their sin, and that's Jesus Christ, God with us. Why? Because we have a sin problem. Listen, the problem in our world today is pretty simple. It's sin. If you're having a problem in your marriage, the root cause is sin. If you're having problems in relationships, the root cause is sin. If you're having problems, you know, maybe, you know, nations fighting against each other, war, the root cause is sin. People stealing, problem is sin. People lying, the problem is sin. You know, we treat symptoms we psychoanalyze them. We try to educate them. We, you know, give them a new coat. You know, if we just give this bum a new coat, then, then he's going to go to work. But all you end up with is a, with a bum with a nice coat. He's still a sinner. We educate men. We try to do all we can to reform man, but, but it's still sin. And it's not skin either. It's not a racial problem. It's a sin problem. If you want to deal with a race problem in America, the problem is sin. Man's hearts need to be changed. Do you want to deal with the divorce problem in America? We need to deal with the sin problem. All the evils and all the ills and all the problems of our society around us today have their root cause in sin. And sin simply is a transgression against God's law. But the fact is we've gotten rid of God. We've gotten rid of His laws. People today, they don't even believe in sin. You stand up and you talk about, about sin being a problem in society today. It's all, oh, you're just so judgmental. You're, you're ignorant. It's freedom of choice. And sadly, we live in a country that has chosen to redefine what sin is. But it's still sin. Sin is sin. Sin is missing the mark. We may try to live a good life, but we all fell. We all missed the mark. And we all sinned. We inherited a sin nature. When Adam fell, we fell so that man is born with a sinful state into this world separated from God. But listen, Jesus Christ is the cure to the sin problem. He will save his people from their sins. He's not a philosopher. He's not a psychologist. 
I mean, could you imagine if the angel said, she will bring forth a son and, and you should call his name Jesus for he will be a psychologist. He'll psychoanalyze you. No. He'll teach you how to, to love yourself. No, sorry, he came to save you from your sins. He came to teach you how to love others because you already do love yourself. That's our problem, you know, it's sin. We like ourselves. Our problem is we don't love others the way we already do love ourselves. How about this? She will bring forth a son and she'll call his name Jesus for he will be a military leader. That doesn't cut it. We don't need another military leader. We need a savior. Here's a good one. She will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will be a politician. No! Anything but that. We don't need a politician to save America. We need a savior. I wish more politicians would look to Jesus Christ for salvation, for a Savior, and look to His law for direction and insight and wisdom to lead our nation. Proverbs 14.34 tells us, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. You know, having a new president allows some more of our conservative values to come into practice, but it's just a change of policies and practices. What America needs is a change of heart. We need revival, but before revival can take place, repentance has to come first. If we want revival in our land, we need to humble ourselves and cry out to God for it and pray for our nation and pray for our community and pray for our church and pray for us as individuals. And I'm convinced that God will hear our prayer. Second Chronicles 7.14. Why don't you guys read that with me right now? Is it up on the screen? Here we go. Let's read it together. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and forgive their sin, and heal their land. Amen. You see, the bottom line is, we need a Savior, and the Gospel of Matthew introduces us to our Savior. You shall call His name Jesus, He will save His people from their sins. Jesus is the answer to our sin problem. And if you're not a Christian this morning, He's the answer to all your problems. Because the root cause is sin. And if you're bound by some habitual sin or habit and you can't find freedom, you just can't stop lying or stealing or living in promiscuity or whatever, Jesus Christ can set you free from the power of sin and free from the penalty of sin. See, I began this study. I mentioned that God has built order into this world and we know that He is not the author of chaos. And God being God reserves the right to interrupt any of our lives at any moment with His own plans even though to us it may, may seem kind of chaotic. They ultimately are designed for good as He did it with Mary and Joseph. And maybe you're here this morning and God has been disrupting your life. Things have been happening that just doesn't seem to make sense. And everywhere you go, God, you know, everywhere you go, someone is telling you how much God loves you and what Jesus Christ has done for you. And you go, why does everyone keep telling me this stuff? Maybe you were dragged to church this morning. If that's you, God is breaking into your life and, and, and He wants to introduce you to Jesus Christ. He wants, wants, you, wants to be your Savior. He wants to be your Lord. You see, we're, we're going to enter into a time of communion right now. Let me explain something about communion. Communion is for every believer in Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you haven't committed your life to Jesus Christ, it's not for you. So when we pass the, the elements around, you know, I ask you just to pass that by you. But communion is for every believer in Jesus Christ. You don't have to go through some class to take communion. You don't have to follow some set of rules. You don't have to fast an hour before receiving communion. The only prerequisite is to know the one to whom communion represents. For you to have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And understand this Christian, 
Don't ever think you're unworthy to receive communion. You are never worthy. Okay? Nor was I. We're never worthy to receive salvation because it's not about you. It's about what Jesus Christ has done for you. So here's the deal. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, God with us, I would plead with you. Stop running and start surrendering your life to Him. Turn it over to Him. Repent of your sin. Come to Christ. Enjoy the forgiveness of your sin. Enjoy the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And enjoy the promise of eternity in heaven. To say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I, I, I commit my life to you right now. And then be blessed. And the first part of your commitment to Christ is to partake communion with us. That's what it's about. I want to give you that opportunity in a moment. But for us as believers, maybe God has been interrupting your life. And He's been knocking on your heart and saying, you need to deal with this area in your life or you need to deal with that area of your life. And, and you come here this morning and, and God is still knocking. Listen, as we come to the communion table, we need to confess our failings before the Lord, confess our sins. Come before the Lord. I, I like to say, come clean before the Lord. He already knows about it anyway. But come clean before Him. Let Him know what's going on in our lives. So I want to give us that opportunity and we'll, we'll pass out the elements together. We'll hold on to it together and we'll, we'll pray and we'll partake of them together. If you haven't uh, you know, partaken with communion with us before, that's how we do it here. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the greatest word that, that you are here with us. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. That you came to save us from our sin. We're all sinners, Lord, in need of your of salvation. And right now, Lord, I want to pray if there's anyone here that is yet to seek your face, to repent of their sin, to be born again. But their desire is right now to have their sin forgiven and to be born again. I want to give them that opportunity, Lord. So I pray that you touch their hearts. Help them to have the faith to make that commitment to follow you today to surrender their hearts and life to you today. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning? Surrender your life. Say, Lord, take control. I'm sorry for my sin. I want to be born again today. If that's your desire, I'm just asking you to raise your hand so I can pray for you. Anybody at all. It's just between you and the Lord getting your life right with Christ. I can't imagine why you wouldn't want that. He's done so much for you. He died for you. He paid the price for your sin. And he wants to lead you and guide you. So if that's your desire, just raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning. Anybody at all? Maybe you've walked away from the Lord. Maybe uh, you backslidden. At one point in your life you made a commitment, but it's been a long time. And, and uh, God has interrupted your life and brought you here this morning and now you want to recommit your life to Jesus Christ. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Anybody else? God bless you, sir, in the corner. Anybody else? Father, I thank you for this one that has raised his hand to recommit his life to you today. And I pray, we pray, that you'd fill him with your Holy Spirit empower him. Thank you, Lord, for the work you're doing in his life. Lord, thank you for the work you're doing in all our lives. As believers, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for communion, Lord, search our hearts. Lord, if there's any wicked way, show us, lead us in the way of salvation. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.